Sundown towns, also known as sunset towns, great towns, or sundowner towns, were these areas in the United States of America and actually all over the world. But we're going to focus here on our great country, our beloved country, the United States of America, where it was primarily whites only. And unfortunately, if you found yourself, and this is in the 1910s to... Uh, you know, the latest time we can really say it was like 1970s, 1980s. If you found yourself there after dark, it was difficult. It was challenging. People were terrorized. People were hurt. So, you know, in our community, they have this thing where we say, make sure you're home before the lights come on. That's the impetus. Because in these towns, you had to be out of town when sundown happened. So we would see signs like this. And I say we, I'm actually talking about our predecessors. We would see signs like this. And so I'm bringing this into the conversation because this deals with solving problems. And these sundown towns really weren't just for people who identify as black. It actually was anybody who was non-white. And there are books on sundown towns, if you'd like to look them up. And this gentleman, James Lowen, has put out two of the seminal works on sundown towns. Well, if you were black in an all-white town, you could not be in that town when the sun goes down, and it was a threat to your safety. Historian and author James Lowen, the man who literally wrote the book on sundown towns, uncovered thousands of these towns that existed in the United States throughout the 20th century. By some estimates, as many as 10,000 sundown towns had sprung up across the country by 1970. Some were the warning to African-Americans not to let the sun go down on you was an unspoken rule that spread by reputation. Others, where the warning was explicitly spelled out in signs posted along the highway or at the town were on the county line. But all of them, whites only spaces, where being black after dark could mean arrest, harassment, assault, or worse. In 1968, 21-year-old Carol Jenkins was selling encyclopedias door to door in the sundown town of Martinsville, Indiana. And she was stabbed in the chest with a screwdriver and left to die in the street. So for African-American travelers, making the choice about where to stop for food, gas, or a bathroom break, or rest for the night, was potentially a life or death decision. It is in part what prompted the publication of this, the Negro Motorist Green Book. This handy guide let African-Americans on the road know where they could find safe harbor and where they needed to steer clearer of the threat of white violence in sundown towns. The Green Book started to become obsolete when the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed racial discrimination in public accommodations. All right, so that brings us to our current solution. So the original Green Book was a business solution to the problem of sundowner towns, of making sure that Black travelers were able to be safe. You know, melanated travelers, Indian travelers, indigenous travelers, whatever term you want to go with, were able to be safe when we moved across the highways and byways of the United States of America. And interestingly enough, Victor and his wife, Alma, were really like the first travelocity. <laughs> so 
In addition to the Negro Motorist Green Book in 1947, they also started Reservation Station, which assisted Blacks with booking travel arrangements. <laughs> in 1947, they would, you know, travel before So when the Green Book came out, it was during the Depression, you know, price for a car was $760. You know, a lot of banks wouldn't give our people loans. Many insurers wouldn't write policies. There were some dealerships that even refused to sell to us. Interestingly enough, Cadillac was one of those brands. But when they found out that our celebrities really like Cadillacs, they started selling to us. And so you would start seeing a lot more of us traveling the country and going from place to place. And many of these travelers were using Victor and Alma Hugo Green's Green Book. The interesting thing is, once they had a chance to start driving, some of these, the, uh, some of our motorists started having new problems. One of the problems was there were very few places to eat that were safe. There were some places that wouldn't sell gas. So one of the stations called ESSO, E-S-S-O, became the first in the nation to welcome, hire, and offer ownership to Blacks. ESSO was a very important company. Later on, they become Exxon Mobil, right? So Lyndon Wright was the first brother to own a ESSO or fill station. You know, when I was coming up, my father said the fill station. <laughs> so in America, that's one picture of him when he was young, when he just got the ESSO and later on in his life. Here's in uh, New Jersey, this family owned the ESSO station. This is in Memphis, Tennessee. And this was a uh, ribbon cutting for a new ESSO station. And the owners are on the side there. So, the Green Book was a business solution to America's sundown towns and some of the black massacres that were happening. And I really think it's important to understand that it was a business solution. It was legally copyrighted and published. It was distributed and sold by mail carriers. It was sold via mail order. It was sold at the ESSO stations. Triple A had a licensing deal and they offered it. And the United Travel Bureau had a licensing deal with the Green family and they offered it as well. It was a business solution. The Negro Motors Green Book was a business solution. It was a effort to help our people avoid humiliation and danger when traveling. Now, it did meet its demise in you know the late 60s because right after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64, the legalized discrimination, the legalized terrorism that was occurring in our country became illegal. And so as the legalized terrorism slowly stopped, well, came to a lower number, we'll say that, uh, then the need for the Green Book kind of lowered as well. And so he died in 1960 and his wife and his children continued the Green Book for a few more years. I think 1967 was the last publication of the Green Book. Um, so that was the historic solution. This is our current solution. 
So the money in our community circulates one time. The money in our Latino community circulates six times. The Asian community circulates nine times, white community forever, forever and ever and ever and ever. So what we're trying to do, what we're, what we're working on, what we are achieving, what we're working on, what we're achieving is making sure that our money, our resource becomes sacred. You know, anything that's sacred is held in high regard. Things that are sacred, you know, sacred text normally transform things. So our resources are transformational and we should use them to transform our situation. Right? Right? I, I think you all agree. So in our current, you know, iteration of the Green Book, it's online. It'll be an app in the next 30 to 40 days. There are 1,400 plus listings and 1,100 of them identify as black owned. One of the other categories in there that's really heavy is women owned businesses. So, hey, give the sisters some applause. They're doing it up. A lot of the businesses in the Green Book and actually in Hampton Roads, a lot of small businesses are women owned. So you can find it on the web. On your phone, you can currently go in, you know, just go to hrgreenbook.com and you can find a phone version of it as well. At this point, everything is free. And this is our form of community service. So everybody can join the HR Green Book for free. Now, if you like some higher tiers of service from the Green Book, then you can donate a little more. And it all helps the 200 plus men. 